Welcome to the Heavenly Banquet, where the hungry are filled with good things. This week's lesson comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, meaning Easter day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I'll not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When Mary Magdalene saw the empty tomb, she doubted. But then Jesus appeared to her, and she cried out, Rabboni! When Mary Magdalene told the disciples that she had seen Jesus, they doubted. But then Jesus appeared to them, and they were overjoyed. When the disciples told Thomas that they had seen Jesus, he doubted. But then Jesus appeared to him, and he cried out, My Lord and my God! You see, the pattern that our Thomas follows here from doubt to faith is the normative one. It's the way all these other people came to believe in the risen Lord. They hear a secondary report. They doubt it. Jesus himself appears before them. They believe. The remarkable thing about Thomas here isn't that he doubted. Everyone did. All of us do. The remarkable thing about Thomas is how he comes to faith. Thomas names his doubt. He proclaims it and even suggests a remedy. Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. It's like he says, here's my stumbling block. Here's the proof, the explanation, the opportunity I need. It's a sort of prayer, a petition. I want to believe. Help my unbelief. And what happens? 
Thomas asks to touch the wounds, and Jesus appears to show him the wounds. Jesus answers Thomas's prayer. Jesus directly addresses the issue, and Thomas believes. And yet, we still call him Doubting Thomas. I'd hate to be remembered only by my greatest moment of doubt, because I've had them. I believe, I confess that Christ died for our sins, but sometimes when I'm singing an old hymn and I see those words about the saving power of the blood, well, they get caught in my throat. And I can affirm a perfectly sound Reformed theology of the Lord's Supper, but I admit that sometimes when I hold the bread and the cup in my hands, I wonder if I'm supposed to feel something more. And I absolutely believe that the Bible is the word of God, that all of these crazy things are somehow true. But sometimes when I find myself at the foot of the cross on Good Friday or in front of the empty tomb on Easter, when I'm staring the thing right in the face, I think that's, that's just so, so unbelievable. I have doubts. I don't say that lightly. Those doubts terrify me. I pray that God will forgive them, and I pray that God will see in my prayers some hint of faith, that even in my doubts, God will appreciate that I still have, that I still have enough belief in his existence and his power that I'm led to think that prayer has any meaning at all. And so I think that's the example we have in Thomas. What we have here is an example of how doubt or skepticism can be a powerful tool to move one forward toward a deeper, more profound faith. When our doubt is active, when it's something that we're seeking to overcome, and not just indifference, when our doubt is active, we with Thomas find ourselves petitioning God to bring us into deeper belief. We think of faith and doubt as opposites, but that's not really true. Faith and apathy are more opposite than faith and doubt. Doubt is often a key part of the journey of faith. It's a stop along the way that most of us make more than once. And when we find ourselves there, it's not an indication of us being bad Christians or disbelievers. It's a sign that we're taking our relationship with God seriously enough that we're letting ourselves be honest and we're letting ourselves start a journey with God without knowing exactly where God is taking us. We all doubt, at least all of us who see faith as a journey and not a one-time stop. Our faith gets shaken. We question it. We wonder why Jesus doesn't appear to us when everyone around us seems to have seen him. We may even feel a bit ashamed of our doubt. I wonder if Thomas felt ashamed that first week. Why couldn't he just accept what the others said? Why did he have to see for himself? I wonder if the next Sunday he thought about not going back. He wasn't one of them anymore. He was the doubter, the only one who hadn't seen. And yet he did go back. And maybe he went back because he had loved Jesus so much that he just needed to hear them talk about him, even if he wasn't so convinced it was all true yet. Maybe he went back because it was easier than being alone. Maybe he went back because he thought, maybe, just maybe, Jesus would come again. For whatever reason, he went back to that community in his hour of greatest doubt, and 
That day, Jesus showed up, and Thomas believed. And here's the thing. After all that doubt, Thomas doesn't just believe in the resurrection. He doesn't just know that, yes, Jesus has been raised from the dead. No, Thomas confesses that Jesus is Lord and God. It is Thomas who solves the mystery of John's gospel. It is Thomas, the so-called doubter, who gets to finally say what's been going on the whole time. It's Thomas, the one the tradition mocks, who finds himself distinguished from the other disciples, not by his doubt, but by his more profound understanding, by his more profound faith. It's Thomas, the last to come to belief in the resurrection, who is the first to confess Jesus' real identity, my Lord and my God. That's pretty extraordinary, I think. It is Thomas who acknowledges his doubt, wrestles with his doubt, challenges his friends and God to remove his doubt. It is Thomas, our doubter, who is brought through that doubt to a more profound faith. It is Thomas, the doubter, who becomes Thomas the confessor, the one who now has the best understanding of who Jesus is, the strong conviction, the great faith that he is Lord and God. And that's the opportunity that doubt offers us as well the opportunity to accept the challenge that doubt poses, to invite our friends to help us with that challenge, to pray that God might enlighten our minds and inflame our hearts to overcome that challenge, to work through, to reconcile our doubts until we're no longer shaken by our doubts, but instead find them built into the foundation of a more secure faith. In this story, Jesus affirms the reality of doubt, the challenge of belief. Some have read his words to Thomas as a sort of admonishment. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. Some read those words as though Thomas needed an extra crutch, that others come to faith easily without having seen, and Thomas needed to be privileged with this moment to foster his belief. I don't think that's right, though. As we've already seen, Thomas's doubt isn't any different from the other disciples' reaction to the news of the resurrection. They don't believe until they've seen, and neither does Thomas. I think, then, that rather than reading those words as scolding, that we can read them as a blessing for us. Jesus recognizes that it is going to be difficult, extremely difficult, to come into faith like Thomas's without the benefit of Thomas's experience. But that's the position that you and I and every Christian after the ascension finds herself in. We are to believe without seeing the wounds, without placing our fingers in his side. We're to believe the accounts of the disciples, the account that John has laid out in this book. We are to believe the Mary Magdalene's and the Simon Peter's and the Thomases of the world without getting to see this risen Lord for ourselves. And so when Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe, he's offering a blessing to us. We are those people, or at least we're the ones working to become those people. We are the ones who have not seen and yet have come or are coming to believe. That's no small task, 
Jesus knows that. Jesus recognizes that we don't have the same opportunity to come to faith in the way that those first witnesses of the resurrection did. He knows that we face a different challenge, that the story is incredible, that a span of centuries even separates us from those events, that if it is a difficult story to believe for those first disciples, for those who walked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, heard Jesus' own teaching, saw Jesus' miracles, if those people doubted that if they weren't convinced until he showed them himself, well, then how much more difficult can it be for us to be expected to come to faith? We who have not seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Blessed. Blessed. Blessed are you who wrestle with doubt. Blessed are you who want to believe. Blessed are you who pray for God's enlightenment. Blessed are you who take your doubts to friends, who share your doubts so you can work them out together. Blessed are you who take your doubts to Jesus, who offer your doubts so Jesus can answer them. Blessed are you who embrace those doubts, who live with those doubts, but who, through prayer and continued discipleship, find those doubts transformed into belief. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Blessed. Blessed. Doubt can be the thing that propels us to faith. It can be what shakes us up. It can be what pushes us out of the doors of our once comfortable places and into a new and a better world. Doubt can be the ticket that starts our journey to new life. It can be a sign, not of the absence of God, but of God working in us to do something new. Doubt as much as you need to, but leave just enough room for the faith that God will show you the right next step. And just keep putting one foot in front of the other. That's the life of doubt. That's the life of faith. Blessed are you who doubt. Blessed are you who doubt so that you may come to believe. Thank you.